Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 923 with Chef Brendan Vesey. There's this nonstop pressure within our industry to just offer more and offer more and offer more. And, oh, somebody came in and they want Diet Pepsi and you don't even have Diet Coke. And somebody wants Splenda and somebody else wants the whatever the one that comes in the pink wrapper and the blue wrapper. And it's just like, before you know it, your tiny little beautiful project that you were so proud of and you were so excited about and you selected every item individually and now you're counting uh, sweetener packets and reordering something that you don't even believe in. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit. Profit, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant on Unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. I don't need to tell you that it's harder than ever right now to be a restaurateur. The cost of goods are going up. Labor expenses are going up. People don't want to work in the industry. Anybody who had experience has, has gone on to different verticals or different industries. And we are just stuck with a lot of people who are very green. And how, how do we increase sales if nobody knows how to sell? Well, you empower them with the right tools. And one tool out there that you need to know about is called S. RV, which stands for Study Restaurant Variety, created by Roger Bodwin from Restaurant Rockstars, a name I'm sure you recognize for his multiple appearances on the show, and his co-founder and co-creator, Zaylin Jacobson, who you'll be working with. This is a tool that will help your team memorize your menu, your uh, your culture, uh, everything, anything you need to train them, your entire training manual is now in an app and accessible anywhere. And really what it is, is an interactive learning tool. And it's a great way to invest in your team and to make them feel valued. There's a lot of data supporting that. This is how the next generation of professionals prefer to learn. So if you need a tool out there to empower your staff, to train your staff, uh, to, to give them the knowledge they need to be sales stars, then check out srvnow.com 
click the link that says request a demo and that will bring you to a page where you fill out your information. The very last field, make sure you let them know that Restaurant Unstoppable sent you their way. They will pay us a commission of $1,500 if you use that link and you you sign up with them. And I just have to say thank you in advance. We're trying to take Restaurant Unstoppable to the next level. And this is one way we can do that by just spreading the word about these tools. And uh, I believe in what they're doing over there. So you're in good hands. Uh, thank you in advance. All right. Do it now. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, chef owner of Botanica Restaurant and Gym Bar, Brendan Vizi. Chef Brendan Vizi, are you feeling unstoppable today? I am definitely feeling unstoppable. <laughs> yeah, man. I cannot <laughs> wait to get into this conversation. So uh, if this is your first time hearing Chef Brendan's name, it's it's, it's sad because you're already a, sh- a guest on the show once before. That means you guys have not been listening long enough. Uh, head back to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 286 or just sh- uh, search Chef Brendan VZ, Restaurant Unstoppable. Google it. You'll find it. Uh, we are going to basically pick up where we left off today. So I highly recommend you go back. You listen to that episode. Uh, you hear how Brendan got to where he is today, and then you pick up from today's episode because it will make a whole lot more sense. Uh, but before we pick up the conversation where we left off, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? It's a quote I stole from LCD Sound System. Just do it right. Make it perfect and real because everything was never the deal. Mm. Why does that resonate with you? What is it about that quote that makes you want to share today? So the song is called Home. And um, when I was building Botanica, this is my neighborhood. I've thought about this particular project for a very long time, way, way before it happened. Um, and I, I really think a big part of what I like to do with my staff and myself and my guests is make this feel like a second home, um, which is, I think gets said a lot with work. I think there are some nuances there where we respect our home. We can kick people out of our home when they don't behave the way we want them to. We take care of our home. Um, But I also think with small restaurants, there's this nonstop pressure within our industry to just offer more and offer more and offer more. And, oh, somebody came in and they want Diet Pepsi and you don't even have Diet Coke. And somebody wants Splenda and somebody else wants the whatever the one that comes in the pink wrapper and the blue wrapper. And it's just like, before you know it, your tiny little beautiful project that you were so proud of and you were so excited about and you selected every item individually and now you're counting uh, sweetener packets and reordering something that you don't even believe in. And so I try to think about how everything was never the deal. Um, and that's not just for the restaurant. That's also for my my life. I have I have two kids. I have a, a wife um, who also has a career and everything that we do professionally, personally, it's all uh, a trade-off. And I think that is also what true in cooking. Any professional cook will tell you that it's all a compromise. There's nothing better than when you're, you know, someone you love makes a dish start to finish. And the minute it's ready, they carry it on a plate and hand it to you and everyone's already sitting down and the timing is perfect. Right. And so we all know that's better. And we are trying to recreate that feeling in a restaurant knowing that we have to control time in so many different ways because we have to start it and stop it and know when we can start it and stop it and then we're always messing with it well what if we stop it here instead and what if we restart it this way and what if we do this and what if we time it out differently and and so the idea of 
everything not being the deal is I, I think it's a good personal reminder and it's also a good kind of overall philosophy of of what is possible um and i'm just going on about this but. yeah man. No, no i love it and so everything not being the deal and i think what what's going through my mind as I'm hearing this is this mentality that um, we don't have to be everything to everybody. And I think that that has gotten a lot of people in trouble and you're seeing it happen across the industry where people are really narrowing their focus and they're choosing to do a few things really well. Uh, And I think that's true to what you've done here at Botanica compared to what you've done in the past. Your menu is much smaller. Uh, You're focusing on just not just gin. I mean, is there more than just we have everything, but we yeah. focus. Yeah, we have a small bar. We have to pick one thing to go deep on. Yeah, and we can't go deep on on vodka and rum and whiskey, and we don't have room for all that. So, yeah, and I think I looked at your menu before. I think I saw maybe like two appetizers, two entrees, and like a dessert. Correct me if I'm wrong. It was pretty. Oh no, we go like five, five or six, six oh, okay. apps, five entrees, and two desserts. But, but, but we keep it pretty short. And people yeah. come in, they're like, "It's," and they're like, "Ah, oh, the menu's short." I'm like, "Well." When you go to someone's house, they don't offer you five choices. I mean, I'm not saying this is the same thing. They're paying. It's different. But we also, every single one of those things matters to us. And we've thought about it and we've worked on it. I think that everything to everyone, the, the, the businesses that are everything to everyone are the nameless, faceless chains that are, they are definitely con- convenient. They're located everywhere. People know exactly what they're going to get. But what they're going to get is like, uh, it's a C at best. And I don't, I don't want to do that. And I think once you start trying to be everything to everyone, I think it's really, I'd imagine it's impossible to be, to be at the top of your game and be everything to everyone. Yeah. Um, there's few people that do it. Well, there's one that comes to mind, the cheesecake factory, but even then it's probably, it's maybe B at best. And I also think like every time we find somebody, I'm not, I don't know anything about the cheesecake factory, but I, as we watch this era of our idols, being uh exposed for whatever corner they were cutting along the way whether it was people or money or um not being honest about ingredients and i'm not i'm not relating this cheesecake factory i'm just relating this to the idea of like of trying to get on that pedestal and thinking like okay well you're the you're the best but it turns out you have a hundred unpaid interns or it turns out that you have been treating any employee who does not look who doesn't match you in uh race gender and background like shit for you know 15 years and you can't control your temper and your personal life is a mess or or whatever it is your finances are a mess i mean all of those things i think some of that comes from the pressure of trying to be everything to everyone and not having this moral it's baked into the definition the word that our industry is hospitality when you look at the definition of hospitality it's generosity it's giving it's 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 all about losing so other people can win and 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 taking a hit to be considerate of others like that's Mm -hmm. what generous that's what hospitality is it's 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 being inconvenienced for the convenience of others right when you think about it and i think that it hurts the industry because it's that mindset of constantly having to fold to what the consumer asks but when you do that for 50 or 60 years you paint yourself into a corner to a corner where you're not profitable, to a corner where you're working crazy hours, and you're always making sure everyone wins. It compounds over time, and we're we're really. I think we, the bottom's starting to fall out. Well, so I th- yeah, I think the bottom is falling out. I think I was fortunate to get there a little bit before. Um, I think this, but this, well, I know for a fact this was happening in some people's brains before the pandemic, and the pandemic just accelerated it all and made everyone realize we can't keep going like this. But I also think. 
the first part of the quote, we focused on everything was never the or was never the deal, but just do it right, make it perfect and real. So if if this is right and perfect and real, and it is what I want to do, and what I believe my staff and together we are putting this thing out that for us is perfect and real. I know perfect's not isn't real, and that's another part of the quote. But it it I don't want you to even consider why we don't have sweet and low. It shouldn't matter that we don't have that. It should the experience should be so great and over the top and your needs are being met with the hospitality that we've decided we want to offer. Not, it's not unlimited. We're not going to, we can't do everything. We're not going to change who we are. We're not going to, we have, we have to be profitable. We can only devote so much time to each table, but you're not supposed to notice that we're not, that, that we're not giving you, that we're not, when we're not paying attention to you, of course we're taking care of somebody else next to you. Cause we have to do that, but yeah. you're supposed to be so well taken care of and lost in the experience that you don't, you don't notice the the warts or whatever you want to yeah. call them. Yeah. So if you do, if you chose not to take my advice and go back to two episode, episode two eighty six to listen to the first time around uh, getting Brendan on the show, then just a real quick recap: you served in the military, uh, was the Navy, I believe. Uh, when you got out of the Navy, you were cooking in Virginia. You found the restaurant COs or CNO, the CNO, yeah, the, the CNO, where you really kind of were surrounded with your 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 people, your cooks, cooks, your chefs, the people that had that passion for you. Uh, you decided uh, to open your own place, the Boot. Um, from there, you came to New Hampshire, I believe. Uh, you were working with some great chefs like at the 100 Club, and you uh, were at the street for a little bit. And mm-hmm. then that's when you opened your first restaurant, the Joinery, uh, or your second restaurant, I should say, because you had the boot. Yeah, first. the boot, but we were we were little kids. I mean, we were in our early 20s, and it was it, a great time, but we didn't know what we were doing yet. I was proud yeah. of it, but you know, it's different now, yeah. So that's the, the fast-forward version, but... I, the reason why I wanted to give the listeners a little bit of a background is because when you were at the boot, I remember from our first conversation, you were saying how you were trying to do everything exactly right, perfect, right? Like where you're make where you're making the pasta to match the sauce. So, and, and you're you know you're trying to 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 do it right, and the, the people down there just didn't kind of get it. They're like, "Well, I want penne. I don't want this fancy pasta." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like you're kind of going back to your roots, where you're like, "No, screw this." Like. I want to do things right again. I want to do things the way they're supposed to be. Am I hearing that right? Yeah, I think you are hearing that. Also, I think we talk about this. I haven't even thought about this till you just said this, but the three restaurants that I've uh, had the most say in, I guess, like in the, you know, whatever you want, ownership, general management, whatever you want to call it, they, they scaled down in size. The boot probably sat 120 and then um, joinery had 60 seats and Botanica has 36. Does that include the patio? No, the patio adds it up. We can put about 18 out there, depending on how we set it up. So we're getting close to 50, a little above 50. But we also, when we have the patio open, we now carefully stagger the reservations using a piece of technology that we can talk about later. But um, I I am very cognizant of what kind of experience we can offer to how many people and how much of myself I can give and how much I can ask of my staff to give. Because... I I have no problem asking you to be 1000% in when you are here. However, I I am the only one who should have to be in it when I'm not here. And if they choose to and it's out of a level of interest and this is primarily the cooks, um not only but I primarily the cooks because food is their life and we have I have been fortunate to find people who share this philosophy where of course if they're gonna see something on 
a walk or a dinner out or uh, their breakfast or, or whatever on their days off when they're not here that's going to spur something in them uh, because we all have the same thing. But I think when you talk about tra- trajectory and what you can offer somebody, I think that getting smaller is was certainly the right choice for me. It is the opposite of what people tell you to do financially. But it's about volume. It's about throughput financially. Sure. And I was always told, oh, if you have less than 100 seats and you're the owner, you're always going to have to be there. Well, this is my job. This is my career. I mean, I listened to one of your other episodes where my friend Matt was saying, you know, sweeping the floor is not something I have to do because someone else didn't do their job. This is the job. Mm-hmm. And I like this work. I know that the schedule is inconvenient. I know that I can make more money doing something else. I know that, you know, it is... I don't know, probably on some level bad for my body. Another way is good for my body because I'm active and not sitting yeah. down all day. But you know, it's like, it, it's not, this job is not, <laughs> everything is not the deal, right? This job cannot be all of it, but it is so many things to me that are so important to me that I, well, I it's, it's not the destination. It's the journey, which is coming to my mind right now. You hear that all the time. And there's a level of truth to that. And I think that people always think that there's an end goal. There's an end like you know a bucket of gold at the end of the rainbow and i think the reality is that's not true you're gonna bust your fucking ass trying to achieve this lofty goal or this this utopia that you've made in your head and you kill yourself trying to get there you scale you you do all these things to to achieve happiness is really what it is and i think the the zen buddha approach is like no just choose to be happy now. yeah the what next what next what next is an antithetical to what how life actually works um, and it it keep you driving keep you interested keep you going but but like you said being in the now when I am here no matter what has gone wrong when we have a a night where everything just happens the way it's supposed to happen you know we do the exact right amount of customers the tables all turn on time the food's beautiful people are ordering the the wines and the drinks we want them to and everything nothing goes wrong right that doesn't happen Something goes wrong all the time. Something that goes wrong that people notice happens. That's rare. But um, that's our job is to have things go wrong and to make it not look like anything went wrong. But the nights when everything just happens just right and everyone's in a good mood and everyone's working together and everyone's happy. That is that feeling I have not been able to recreate in any other way. And so I'm going to keep working toward that feeling for now. Yeah, the obstacle is the way, and and and, and, cho- and choose to embrace it in the moment. And to, and I think it's a mindset thing. And and I mean, you can have all the money in the world, but you, it's not going to bring you happiness. But if you choose to do work that brings happiness to you, and you, you you choose just to like to embrace the pain, you know. And I think that's easier said than done. Um, but. I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I'm picking up what you're putting down. I'm sure the listeners are too. So back when I last spoke to you, it was 2016, December of 2016. Uh, you were, I think, two years into the joinery. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, that was a theme of our last conversation that you were focusing on impact and not necessarily like volume or growth, but you really wanted to be able to, to, to scale down every time. And you've done it even further here. Um, where were you in 2000, like December 2016? I think I heard you say you did a, you were doing like 500,000 opposed to your 3 million that you were doing at street beforehand, but you were like, okay with that because it was smaller and more intimate. Yeah, that that's, those numbers sound about right. However, I think that, um, now that I know more, right. Joinery probably should have been doing 750,000, right? So I was still 
you know, restaurants do this thing where they they start and it's this kind of rocky up and down in the beginning, and then they start when they when they start going, they grow, and then they plateau, and then they decline. And they all pretty much do the same thing. It's really hard to ever get a second growth period um, without obviously like an actual physical growth of an expansion or something. But so you don't, the problem is you don't always know where you are until you get to the next phase. Right. So, so if you're at 500,000 and you're like, great, we're growing. That's, that's fantastic. And you think, cause you think, well, I need to get to 750, but then you stall out at that and you get too comfortable and just, you know, say, okay, well this, and then turns out we're in our plateau. And then when the decline, then if the plateau is not sustainable, then the plateau is not sustainable. Yeah. And ultimately that's what happened to me in new market and pandemic. Let me accelerate the choice, but the plateau was never, was not at the level I needed it to be. And that's, it's fine. Yeah. I mean, no matter where you are in the world, there's, there's a, I think it's the law of diminishing returns. It's like, it's a thing. There's a name for this and it's, it happens to every business. There's, there's, over time, your returns are going to start to diminish. Uh, the the they say in the restaurant industry, it's about five years. Every five years, you should refresh and or change something to create juxtaposition. So you look, so pe- people look again, you know, mm-hmm. um, because there's always that new shiny object out there that, that's going to distract your your consumer. But I also think there's like there, there are there are restaurants of convenience and location and price point that are different, and then there are the places that are genuinely special where the way I think about it at Botanica is that we need a certain number of regulars, people that, that, that love us. We're going to get tour. We're going to get people because of convenience and special occasion and price point and location. And we're going to get those people anyways, but we need a certain number of, you know, just champions, cheerleaders, whatever you want to call them. People who just, you know, they're going to come here multiple times a month um, they love it here. They tell their friends how much they love it here. And those people do come in and out because they will move away. Something will change in their life um, that will change their circumstances. But I just every week I'm trying to gather one more of those people and just say, OK, so we might need to change in five years. We might need to create a, a shift in customer's mind or we might say, well, if we can keep gaining these these people and we can keep treating them the right way and keep them coming in, then there's some stability in and enjoyment in, in, in not changing and yeah. in places that are the places that are open for 10 years and 15 years and 20 years. And, and I don't know if that's this, but I, I listened to another person I respect a lot. Um, Dagan from liars bench. And he was talking about how he's, you know, he's, he's, he's brewing. The, the brewery is doing so well. The tasting room is busy. And the first thought from most people is, uh, who either understand your business or don't, is that you should grow. Okay, so where are you going to open your next one? How are you going to make this bigger? How are we going to get more people in here? How are you going to get more beer You know, further up and down the East Coast? And what he told me was, I'm looking for width, not height. I want to know, like, he's like, I'm, I'm happy. I, I have a good staff. I've got a good thing going. I have what I always wanted. And, and I'm in the same place. And so how long can I have this for? So, like, I'm still have to make decisions to make sure I can ensure that if I'm at my plateau and my plateau is good, then how how long can this plateau be? Because it might be five years, it might be fifty years, and there there are restaurants that open a hundred years, and if they can keep that plateau going that long, that's 
that's incredible. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people that say the, the secret to maintaining those numbers is growth, grow or die. And that's the only way you, you continue to, to, to maintain or grow numbers is by literally growing the physical space. But I think a lot of people get distracted by that and they try to grow physically uh, and growth. I think has multiple vertical. There's multiple, has multiple meanings. Like yes. growth can be internal growth can be, what are we doing here? And how can we do it even better? And how can we do it even better? And how until until you you literally you take that micro that, that microscope of looking down at all the details you're doing, and that that bring that's what brings people back, right? Is improving the what you're doing every day, and that's growth. Um, and then you you get to a point where you have you've grown all of your people, where you have two or three people stacked up, where they could all like you have your GM, the AGM, and somebody who could be all an AGM or a GM, but where is that person going to go? Because you don't have room for them. I think that's when you start looking outward. I think um, the idea of expansion when it's, it's for a person is definitely the, that's the, you need to create an opportunity or you're going to lose the relationship with this person, which exactly that, uh, that I understand when it's come down to people, that's, that's, that's different. Right. So, but I also think that some of them will move on and that's also beautiful and fine and okay. And I've worked with a lot of amazing people. I mean, that should be the and, goal. I exactly. Personally. Right. And, so, but it, what happens is when you make it the goal to push people out of your business, cause you're growing them and you're hoping for more for them, they end up sticking around, yeah, you know? Yeah. And, and it's like, it's opposite. Um, but so, so going back to the joinery, mm-hmm. um, and looking and I'm sure that, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Oh yeah, as they always oh, yeah. say. So reflecting back at that, because you, you didn't, you didn't just close things. It's not like things weren't working out. The pandemic forced you guys to close. From what I picked up on, there was an article that came out in like mm-hmm. March mm-hmm. where you admit in the article that the numbers weren't where you wanted it to be, mm-hmm. and that you were still kind of trying to get to that seven hundred and fifty. Mm-hmm. But the pandemic kind of just made it not possible. But yeah, so I was always trying to figure out how to how to grow it, how to change it, what would work. Um, I think there were some, I still had a, 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 some red lines that I didn't want to do. I think I'm not, I wasn't not paying attention to my surroundings. I saw what else was doing well in that town. And there were certain things that I was, I just said, well, I don't want to be that restaurant. I would rather not be here than be that place. Yeah. And we also talk about people. So the people thing was happening too, where, we started to have people who spun off and, and did their own things or moved away to do their own thing. And, and that's, that's beautiful and fine and great. And it was getting harder and harder to replace them with people. And so that nexus of, of staff that made it so special that I was trying to create, you know, sometimes you're, I just wasn't able to hold it together. Um, and, and so I think the, in business, people talk about kind of like what you, you know where your zero is when you're talking about like financial. Where, where what's what's zero? And in restaurants pre-pandemic, at least the restaurants I was familiar with, zero was zero, like zero dollars. Like we are making money tonight to pay bills that we already have, yeah. right? And that is a terrifying way to run a business. However, that was normal for restaurants and probably still is for a lot of restaurants. Yeah. But so when that when the pandemic comes and that cash flow just gets turned off instantly. Then you're like, okay, so we're already behind, and now there is no more money coming in. So it's always just, it was always just you're just as long as you're a couple dollars ahead of your next, you know, your next bill, then you can you can just keep going, you go forever, and then eventually you're going to close someday, and then that's all going to catch up unless you can grow. So I I think 
the the pandemic luckily i think was terrifying and now has allowed most businesses to reset their zero and say okay zero is this much money now because when i close i'm going to pay all my past debts and there should be something left because as i learned from closing joinery closing a rest closing a business is not free <laughs> it's actually pretty expensive so there's still a lot of people to pay um and I, I paid them all and it, it, you know, I have other, there were other ownership interests there. There's somebody else running a restaurant there. Now I hear they're doing quite well. That's great. I haven't been, it's not personal. I just, it, it was a, a time in my life where I created something and I don't, I don't really want to see what's there. Yeah. No, I hear you. Um, in, I mean that, that building, I mean, to give the, the listeners a little context, uh, new market, small town a little it's a it's a quaint town it's a mm-hmm. charming town they have a little downtown area with maybe i don't know what like seven restaurants eight restaurants maybe a little more than that mm-hmm. um your restaurant was in a mill building that mm-hmm. uh is also uh, apartments condos mm-hmm. um there were two or three restaurants there before you w- were there not there was definitely or at least uh, one there was a restaurant before when it was built and you know kind of the same thing and you it, it's it's easy when you're young to think like okay well someone else wasn't successful here and you think, you know, all the reasons why. And so you go in and you change those things. What were, okay. So what, is there anything in your mind now about why you thought it wasn't successful when it wasn't yours that you were trying to change? I'm going to try to choose my words carefully here. Yeah, so I know that there's political, there's like, always personalities that, yeah. you know, that affect things. However, I think that, so what was offered there before the joinery was very narrow. Um, and I think this is part of like that growth mindset or that like, uh, because of, th- I think because of the internet it's and social media, it is really easy to see something that you love and be like, Oh man, they're, they just do this yeah. and they're so good at it. It's like, well, they might be in a city with, a couple million people or at least a couple hundred thousand people. And so like we talked before about needing those like super fans, right? So maybe you need, you got to know how many of those, maybe you need 5,000 super fans to run your business uh, to, to make it successful. And, you know, Portsmouth has 30,000 residents, new market. I don't even know how many it has, but it's yeah. not even close to Portsmouth, but, but there's 30,001 seats in restaurants. Exactly. In so we have more seats than we do <laughs> guests and Portsmouth draws from the surrounding area. It is everyone's downtown. And I live here and I'm, you know, I was probably more. So I think we Jordy widened out from what was there before. We offered more than what that place had offered, um, as far as our scope of what we were trying to do. Yeah, but Newark is also very unique in the sense that it's only five miles from downtown Portsmouth. Yes, however, it is on the way to nowhere. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but but there's a giant bay in between. Yes, so like you can't get to Portsmouth without driving 20 minutes or 30 minutes in either direction, depending on the traffic. Uh, so it's unique in the sense that it's very close to everything, but also so far away because you have to go around this giant body of water. So there is that idea of like, well, we don't have to go all the way to Portsmouth. If you're living west of Portsmouth, you can go to Newmarket, which is a little bit closer. Mm-hmm. It's trendy. It's, mm-hmm. it's hip. Um, so me reflecting back at that space where the journey was, there's not a lot of parking. No, there's nowhere to park. I mean, there is parking, but it's across the street. It's it's the visual the visual part is hard. So, I you have to know it's there. You're you not have to know drive it's there. by and see it. Yeah. And so when I got the opportunity to come to uh, Botanica and do or, or or to do this other mill building that we are in now and kind of redesign a concept, I tried to take just like I thought I knew what what didn't work uh, at the place before me there. This was new construction, new de- or 
old building, new development, reconstruction, or whatever you want to call it. And so I really had a lot of um, rules for myself about things I thought I had done wrong with joinery. Okay. Um, do you want to get do you, do you sure. know those? Yeah. yeah. So one thing is I think people try to open on a string, which I'm not saying this is a bad idea. It is financially terrifying to open a restaurant. And I think any way that you can save money does make sense. However, I also think that if you can't borrow the money from a bank, I think, I think like wanting to borrow the money from a bank, even if you had the money yourself, if what the bank, the, the due diligence the bank forces you to go through and convincing someone else this is a good idea because, of course, you think it's a good idea. And, of yeah. course, your friends and your family probably think it's a good idea. But if you want... To your face, at least. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if you want the bank to give you a sum of money, they the level of preparedness that I had to have to go to that bank and say, this is what I'm going to do. This is what it's going to do. There's a lot of people who've never answered those those questions for themselves. They just said, like, oh, man... I'm a great cook. You know, I got this great little spot in this kind of neighborhood. The rent's affordable. I think I can get in there and, you know, I'm going to cobble together, use restaurant equipment. And and that's a great story. And it does happen and it does work. But you hear about the ones that work. You don't hear about the hundred that did the same way and failed. And so I was like, I want to be, I need parking, right? I love walking and biking. And I love the idea that there are parts and seasons where Portsmouth is a very pedestrian town, but we live in northern New England. It's not realistic in the winter. Yeah. Um, it's And I also, I love downtown. I wanted to be in the West End, which is my neighborhood. And I also know that a lot of people don't go downtown in the summer who live here because it's it's mobbed with tourists. What is it, like a half mile from downtown where we are right now? Maybe about yeah, a mile? Maybe, maybe a mile at the most. Yeah. Um, but it's if you draw a circle around where everyone who lives in this town lives, we're more centric than downtown, right? Because downtown, half of it's against the water. Yeah. More than half it's against the water. So that whole circle, people don't live there. And so um, this is centrally located for the residents of the town. And I knew I wanted, to, I wanted the tourists to be extra and the residents to be what this was for. And I also knew it had to be nice. I wanted it. I, I, I didn't want it to have the mill joinery had that like iron and wood, like the new England mill aesthetic. And it, it's, it was beautiful in its own way, but I wanted this to be softer and more feminine and have a sense of, of place and things that matter. I mean, the, I didn't want to just make a nice restaurant that could be anywhere uh, because there's a lot of those that exist. And, I think about like when I was learning how to cook in the nineties, there there were these restaurants everywhere where they all had like, it was like a, you know, hazelnut crusted rack of lamb with mashed potatoes, asparagus, and like a red wine sauce. And it was beautifully like tall plated. And it was this, it, it was just, there was nothing wrong with it. It just had no, the lamb was from Australia and the potatoes probably came from Idaho and the asparagus probably came from Mexico or, or further South. And there just wasn't anything about it that was, had nothing to do with place. You know, the tables were made from Formica or whatever. I just wasn't, I really wanted to like, it had to mean something. And so I think there are restaurants and then there are restaurants and the restaurants where I fell in love with cooking and fell in love with being in a restaurant were truly special places. And I only wanted to create a restaurant if it could be a special place. Like I need people from the next generation to come here and work and choose this for their life. That is important to me and I think it required a special 
the atmosphere is as important as the food and that's as important. I mean, the people are the most important, but the atmosphere matters just as much. You can't just forget about it. You can't get people crappy silverware and have them, you know, eating great, amazing food with a, a bendy fork. That's like, it just doesn't, it worked for an era, which was great, but that, that era is ending. So we're talking a lot about what you wanted, but Botanica to be, uh, but what we're reflecting back at, the joinery. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk a lot about, yeah, yeah, yeah. but reflecting back at the joinery and, and reflecting on the things that you think that you could have done better. You said you opened on a shoestring budget. Um, do you think that you needed more operating capital to get more runway to, to, to create awareness? And is that kind of what you meant by that? I think more runway. And I think putting more, I was so focused on the food. Um, I think putting more into decor and considering layout, um, you know, you get some things that are just, it was a great opportunity. You know, someone offered me this, I didn't, you know, I, I owned it, I guess in air quotes where I didn't, you know, I made all the decisions, but I didn't have to, I didn't have to put in the money. I didn't have to even borrow the money from a bank. So when we closed, like it, it, I pretty much walked away clean. Like it's, you know, aside from not having a job and and having to let my staff go, which was, um, yeah, never fun, never fun. Um, but I, you and everyone else. Yeah. And I guess to be fair, I did have a job. I was running two restaurants at the time. So Botanica was already open. So I really, I had to choose one, but I think, yes, I think more runway would have been helpful. I think also though, I think paying more attention to how everything that was in that space defined the restaurant as opposed to just saying, well, these tables are already here and they're fine. And this silverware is already here and it's fine. And I think we should paint the walls and let's put up a sign and let's print a menu and let's go. Well, and I was very cost conscious about what I was asking for from the people who did have to write those checks and say, okay, well, I don't, I don't want to ask you to, to move the bar, even though I think it's stupid. I think it should be different. Like, I don't want to ask for this because even though I think we need it and I, I probably should have been more upfront in those regards. What are and, the two biggest things that you think that space needed that if you could have asked well, for? Well, I think it? they have them both now. But w- so one thing was the hood was because it was built to be so narrow before, the hood was um it's a tall building, narrow shoot. So basically you have a straw and you put a big fan on the top, it doesn't matter how how powerful the how how hard you suck on the straw if the straw is too small, it's only ever going to move so much air. Volume. And so when we were cooking things like, you know, burgers Friday night would be a really popular thing. You know, it's like these grass fed burgers with pimento cheese and pickled vegetables. I really was proud of it. I really liked it. I thought it was an awesome dish and people would order it. And, um, you know, we throw 10 burgers on the grill on a busy Friday night and they're just smoke. And like, we're trying to get suck it out with the hood, but the hood couldn't keep up. And then like, and I just, I, I tried, I mean, I got people in there to look at it and they told me there was no solution or, or it was going to cost, you know, this astronomical amount of money. Yeah, so I think basically tear down the, the, the whole yeah so i don't know what, what they did but someone told me now building. that it's someone told me now it's fixed and then yeah. and on top of that because that that's you know then it's not just smoke it's also heat is escaping which is supposed to be pulled out so the ventilation couldn't keep up so it just wasn't as comfortable in there as i wanted it to be and so i think that and then i think i would have changed um i would have changed the seating uh i think there were a lot so this is something i i never i, I sort of thought of but i never really put it together so there's a lot there were a lot of four person tables in that restaurant right and people think like, oh great fours fours are good for the number one group of people that come to a restaurant overwhelmingly is twos yes right so botanic has two four person tables so every and two top comes in you're losing two more exactly yeah. so if you make more two tops you can push two tables together make a four you can't cut a table in half in the middle of service and make it into more tables so yeah i think there were some things like that and i, I you know i 
I don't know. And maybe I could have changed those things and it still would have happened. I don't know. I think new market's still new market. I think the big thing that needed to change in new market um, was the was probably the price point. And I wanted joinery was about purchasing from these local farms and where the things came from. It all mattered. And so I yep. wasn't going, I could only go so low and I, that was like a red line that I wasn't going to cross. Yeah. And I think that kind of just brings us back full circle to what we were talking about before, where what's your zero. We're talking about that, right? Yeah. How important. Yeah. Like knowing. And I think this is where we get in trouble is we're so afraid of inconveniencing the consumer mm-hmm. by, you know, sticker shock by charging what we need mm-hmm. To create a reasonable zero for ourselves, i.e., paying ourselves, having owners pay, and having that money, mm-hmm. that we we create situations where we're destined to fail because we can't get what we need mm-hmm. to sustain the business. Um, and I think that is a across the board thing that restaurant tours need to get better about is communicating this is what it costs to do business today. Mm-hmm. And this is what we need to charge the consumer. And the consumer wants all these things. They want fresh food. They mm-hmm. want locally sourced. Mm-hmm. They want creativity. That comes at a cost. And I think I think it's good that the that the prices are going up. I think that we yeah, don't, don't value yeah. food the way we, we should. And I think there's a, a cultural shift that needs to happen in society that I hope restaurant tours are at the leading edge of to say enough is enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no reason I don't. I'm not interested in being part of a race to the bottom, and I think that um, it doesn't happen in very many other. For some reason, restaurants have always. I think because you have such a connection to the person who is often preparing and serving the food, and, and maybe the person who's even setting the prices that that you. Some people believe that relationship gives them a level of a, like a leeway that you don't have anywhere else. Like. You can haggle about something, maybe like a car, maybe this, but there's definitely a red line when you go to, you know what, I don't care how good a negotiator you are. There's definitely a point on that car where like they're not going any lower and anything else we buy, you can't go into a, you know, a, a, a CVS and negotiate the price of a bottle of water. Like it is what it is. And they've decided, you know, Nestle or whoever has decided that I'm, this is what we charge for this. And CVS is that this is what we mark on that to make sure the store works. And like, I you want us to exist and you want us to be here. We're yeah. going to, you know, we're going to charge what we need to charge. And I'm yeah. still very cautious. I think I had a guy come in who was so happy and he said, you should raise all these prices by 10% and never look back. And, and I was very, I'm very flattered. I think that's great. I also do want it to be, you know, reasonable enough, right? I, I have things I want to do. I, I want to be able to use the products I want to use. I really want to be able to take care of my staff the right way. And I, and, and I, and I want to, like you said, I want to reset that zero. I want to have a different zero so that I don't, I, I don't want to now when bills come, I, I pay them and it's yeah. great. I don't have to like do this financial scramble where I'm like, yeah. Oh, you know, when, how much do I think we're going to do on Friday night? And can I mail this check? I think it'll hit before payroll and that should work out. And like, that is exhausting. Yeah. And it's, and it's really, really bad financial management. And it also, it's part of why I think restaurants don't get to be like, these are some, these are businesses. It's we are one of the largest industries in, in the world. Second largest. And so behind we, the, the medical. Yeah. yeah. So we're right. And so both of those things are providing a service. The hospital's not negotiating with you because that nurse needs to make what the nurse needs to make. And the LNA makes and the doctor makes it like everyone and Dude, no one. You're sorry. Keep yeah. Going, keep going. Yeah. I know you're, I know, I know you, you, you believe all this. I think like nobody, I don't know why we are the one industry where, I think because the the barrier to entry is low, yeah. we get we don't get taken seriously at all. In, in, but the, you, nobody will take you seriously until you take yourself seriously. <laughs> True, and I think that's, that's totally part fair. of our issue. Is it, it comes with the the nature of our the the beast, the nature that 
the human nature of most restaurateurs mm-hmm. is that we're so giving. We just want everybody to like us. Just just approve of me. Just like oh, I mean, I still am guilty of it. You know, someone's up yeah. not not happy, and you're like, you know, like I think we should. You know, they they didn't like this. I think we should comp this. I'm like, well, so. Someone one time was like, why are you comping the thing that wasn't anywhere? like everyone wants to give away drinks because drinks are profitable and people notice that gesture. Oh, we gave them, you know, they had to wait for their table because somebody else wasn't done. So we gave them a free round. Yeah. Well, so that has a decent margin. It's not the end of the world to give away a drink and it does feel hospitable. But also like why? I, I, if you go wait in line somewhere else, go to, a, go to the grocery store and the line's long. When you check out, they're not like, oh, hey, thanks for waiting in line. We're going to knock 10% off your bill. Yeah. Like, they don't give you a, a sandwich or something. Like, hey, thanks for waiting. Like, I, <laughs> so <laughs> you're hitting a, 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 like, you're getting impersonal for me, like hitting a vein. Cause recently I was at the dentist, which is considered medical. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's a doctor. Um, and I was waiting for 20 minutes. I waited for, I said, I'm going to wait for 20 minutes. If I'm not, being mm-hmm. seen after 20 minutes i'm walking out yeah and i did that i walked out of the dentist appointment i didn't say anything i just walked out yeah um and i kind of felt like a jackass because mm-hmm. it's a jackass thing to do and honestly i'm kind of i, I regret it now after like yeah. i was like i was irritated i had a busy day um but it's like the the thing that was going through my mind is like this isn't acceptable anywhere else where you can just schedule an appointment and make somebody hang out for a half hour before seeing them uh-huh. um but it's that mentality of valuing your service and recognizing that what I have is valuable and that the consumer will wait because they know that they need me. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's the difference is like, we don't value our service, but the truth of the matter is you, you can't walk out of a dentist and go down the street to get your foot, your tooth fixed that day. True. You can do that with a restaurant. Mm-hmm. There's other options. Well, so I think you can do that with a restaurant. And I think I do. So when you were talking about, you know, valuing ourselves and how we, um, I think not being the same. So inconvenience and you can't walk down the street. So I think about this with closing, right? Some there, like we might have some days around the holidays. Where I'm like, Hey, I don't want to work. And you know what? They don't want to work either because just cause I have a family and I'm the one who makes the decisions doesn't mean they don't also have people that they love and want to spend time with. And yes, I know we would be busy if we were open on Christmas Eve or the Friday after Thanksgiving. I know that we would do really well, but I don't want to do it. And right. And so what I think, I think there's, there is a fear in restaurants of like, Oh, you can't close, especially on a day you're supposed to be open because I, I've heard this before from another restaurateur who said, well, if, if they come by once, you should be open to seven days a week. Cause I think if they walk by, everyone has a routine, right? They walk by on a Monday and you're closed and then they walk by again and, and you're closed. It happens to be that it was the two days you're closed every week, but they did it twice and they've just, they've written you off now is what this belief was that they would, they're never going to come again because they only walk by there on Mondays and you're never open. It's like, well, that's okay. Uh, I also don't know that it's true. What I think is when I think about it, I think about it with a car, like a car analogy, right? If I want to buy a cheap compact car and I drive over to the Toyota dealership and they're closed and there's a Honda dealership next door that is open and I don't really care what car I'm buying. I just need a price point and transportation. Then I'm going to go over and I'll, you know, I'll get the one that's open. That's fine. But I, one of the things I talk about the service is like, don't, I don't want to be Honda or Toyota. I want to be Ferrari or Bentley or whatever. I, I don't, I don't care about cars. I don't have a nice car. It's not my thing, but I do know these. If you want a Ferrari, you're on a waiting list and, and you're not, you don't just roll into the dealership. You, you, you're on a waiting list. Then you get an appointment and it's a special experience and you will wait. You yeah. wait years. You'll definitely wait through the two days. They're closed a week. Mm-hmm. So I just don't, I don't believe that 
uh, it's the same thing of trying to be everything to everyone. It's, but Ferrari is also charging one hundred and fifty thousand. Sure, Ferrari charges right. what they need to charge. Exactly, or what, the, or more than need to charge because and, they can. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. Like when you're writing your menu and you're figuring out prices, it should be down to the gram value. Like you're weighing everything out. You know, to the penny what that costs, and then there should be a baked in margin on top of that. That is unbudgeable and if you know what if that if that the cost of or the, you know that the products that you need to make that item on your menu those prices change then your your price should reflect that and i think that's where we get in trouble is we kind of set it and forget it and we're not constantly mm-hmm. changing our prices well, i think also depends if you price with you can price with the market and you can price with costing right so yeah. they're two different things so there's if you say okay we're we're a nice restaurant in portsmouth and in portsmouth nice restaurant entrees that are comparable cost this much money in this range. So we're going to keep the entrees in that range. Right. Yeah. And so there might be something like risotto where if we did it purely based on food costs, it would cost, we'd have to charge like $4, right? Cause it's like, it's rice and stock and butter and cheese and it's delicious and our customers like it. And I'm not trying to say that it's not worth what we charge for it, but like you're, you're not really just buying what you're buying. You're also the reason we charge people to, bring their own birthday cake or their own wine or whatever. It's like you are renting your seat for this period of time. And we, our job is to not uh, have you feel that way, but this is all just a giant timeshare. It's a fractional mortgage and you're, you renting your table for an hour and a half on a Friday night. And that means that costs this much per seat. And we are going to try to get you there one way or the other. I don't care if you have three drinks and an appetizer and a dessert, or if you want to have you know, entrees, like if there's a minimum that we are willing to accept for that seat and because that's about what we need to make ourselves whole and sustainable. And so we're going to offer you enough to make sure that you want to, you want to, you want to do that. And, um, I don't want it to feel so transactional. I think that's part of what hospitality is doing is, is, is not making it feel that way. But, um, but the, the, the down to the, you know, the real deal economics of this are that everyone is renting their seat from you. Yeah. And you can't ignore fiscal responsibility no. even though you don't want to feel of course not. i'd much rather chop onions than pay bills yeah. or look at or try to project what we're going to do next week and next month and next year yeah so i, I want to transition the conversation to what's yeah. going on here today uh but first we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors when we come back before we start talking about botanica i want to distill the two biggest lessons you learned uh saying like in, in, in opening your second restaurant and what that was like before opening your third Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often, Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-Day Pilot Program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurant tours through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, 
with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. Restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. All right, we're back. And I want to transition to talk about Botanico and what you got going on here today and, and how you made this come to reality or to come to fruition. But the mission statement for Restaurant Unstoppable is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. I think we're going to transform the industry by transforming individuals. Uh, so how have you transformed over the, this four-year period from when we had you on the show to where you are today? So I... time we had you on the show. Yeah. So the beginning of joinery, you know, I had um, I had a daughter, uh, my and my wife was pregnant with our second daughter when... Um, when we opened and um and so i think when you're getting into your 30s and you're raising a family there's this um or not raising a family everyone's busy in their own way i don't mean to separate somebody out for different reasons but i think you don't know how much free time you have when you are young until you get older and that's part of you you can't take advantage of it even if you're 20 and you're listening to this right now and you think like damn you know, I got a lot of, no matter what you do, you're going to look back and be like, I had so much more time and that's part of just life. And so I think as I got busier, I still thought like, I can't, I can't slow down everything. Um, I just have to do more and I'll try to be everything to everyone. And that was true at home. It was true at work. And I think I, I thought we were growing. And so I really thought that I could just, I'll keep going and then we're going to get there. I never was I was ever happy with with the journey because I was always thinking about the destination and and so I think that's where I was and what has changed um the pandemic definitely accelerated this for me um because before that when I opened when I first opened Botanica joinery was still open so I was running two restaurants and there were days where it was great you know I had two each restaurant had a chef de cuisine they each had a dedicated, talented service staff. And there were days where I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to go to joinery. I'm going to do this and talk to these people. And I'm going to deliver this product. And I'm going to do this. And then I'm going to Botanica and do that. And uh, and there were there were amazing days and amazing food at both places and, and things I was proud of. Um, but there were also days where it was just, it was just way too much. I just, I couldn't be where I needed to be. And I was... I would maybe, you know, avoid a difficult conversation with an employee. because like, I just don't have time to have this conversation right now. I don't have time. I can't. Yes. I understand this is a problem. Like someone's complaining to me. I'm like, I understand this is a problem. I understand what this person did is not okay. However, I can't blow it up right now because I'm needed over here too. And I think we all do that in our lives and our jobs. And sit now, this is what just Botanica. I think I am more, ready to have those conversations because i know when i built this and i said okay if i'm going to borrow this what at the time to me was a terrifying amount of money from a bank if i'm going to do this and i'm going to really put my name on it and in my town and i'm going to say because people still came to joinery who didn't know who i was or what i was doing but this is like i live here for 
you know, 12, 13 years. And I'm just like, hey, this is my place. This is my brain exploded all over the walls. And I'm asking all of you to come in and see it and enjoy it and be a part of it. And I can't do that and have it not be okay. So I built this to be okay. Well, how much of this work can I do myself if I really had to? If we were in the worst situation where couldn't afford to pay anybody else, you know, can't do this, can't do that. Like, could I do, you know, 10 tables a night where I cook the food? Maybe my my wife, after her other job, comes and serves the food. We really have to, if we really have to do this, survival mode. Yeah. Yeah. How, how could we, how low could we get in survival mode and, and still make it work? And so I think that was a good decision. And now when we were busy, everyone's like, oh, I wish this place should be bigger. It's like, I, I, I think I get wrapped up with that too. Like, oh, maybe people want to come here and we should do more. But at the same time, like it was built this way for a reason. We, we, we fortunately never had to go into survival mode, but it could still happen. I don't, I think it's unlikely at this point, but it could still happen. And so I think now that I am not in survival mode and I'm not in this like nonstop rush, rush, rush here, rush there, doing this, doing that. I'm sure I still easily fall into that trap. I still do it some days, but I, I, fo- I try to focus on like every time my staff is doing something, they are, they're getting paid for, but they are also doing, they are doing work that I directly profit from. That is how capitalism works, right? Like they get paid a wage, but they have to produce more than what they take. Otherwise it wouldn't, the business doesn't work. Yeah. And so I try to be cognizant, of that. And I think it puts me in a better place in the way I deal with them and the way I talk to everyone, the way that I, you know, I, I, I don't yeah. know. I don't know if that really answers the question, but no, it, it does. I mean, you're just, um, you're, 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 it sounds like you're scaling back to be more intentional and to, to not have to rely on other people right now, uh, because there's a really good chance that you might not have other people in the industry right now. Like, they, 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 there's the people right now. It's, never been this difficult to find people to work in the industry. No. You said your biggest challenge during our first interview was finding people. And yes. I kind of yes. giggled at myself. I was like, I wonder if that's gotten any better. Well, especially <laughs> with, uh, with service staff. Uh, so that's another thing about opening in a better location, right? So service staff are mostly going to, they're going to drive to work pretty much. There are very few because of the way our area works and our con works. There are very few people who are walking to work or live or are picking their job based on pure geography. Yeah. You know, they're so, so if you're live in Dover and you're going to drive somewhere, you know, people who don't live here, you know, roughly 20 minutes from here, most people are going to drive to Portsmouth or Kittery to work because they can make the most money. So why would you drive 20 minutes somewhere else if you're really good, really good at your job? Well, I'll drive 20 minutes here instead. If you really like your your employer and your colleagues in the business, like that, that there's something to be said for that. But when it comes down to hard, you know, economics, like if you can make $150 in a six hour period, or you can make $300 in a six hour period. You're going to drive the 30 minutes extra to make another. Yeah, of course you're going to drive your hundred percent. Yeah. And I, but I also think that, right. Everyone knows this. The server knows it. The, the owner knows it. The managers know it. And so some people who do really well, restaurants that do well and are able to take care of staff really well, have used this as an excuse or license to abuse people. And that is, it's the cycle of like, I can't find any help. I can't find any help. Oh, I can't find any help. It's like, well, maybe stop treating people like garbage and yeah. maybe it'll get better. Like I agree. We have a nationwide shortage of staff. It is a epidemic in a lot of industries. It is particularly bad in service, but also some of this is our fault as leaders. It is at, well, not some, almost all of it. There's pandemic accelerated it. It made it more laid it bare, but this is our problem. We created it and we can fix it. And 
if we're not creating an environment people want to come to work in and, and, and it could be financially stable at home and can be emotionally healthy and physically healthy, then maybe we shouldn't get people. Maybe we should go away. I mean, I, th- I think I agree with 100% of everything you said. We are in this position because we created it, and that's why we're here today to share information about how can we turn this ship mm-hmm, around. Mm-hmm. What can we do? How can we operate? How can we change the business model? How can we literally change everything that's broken about the industry and move better in a, you know, in a, a more fiscally responsible, mentally responsible, uh, holistic way? Mm-hmm. Like, And that's kind of what we're here to do. Um, so with this space... Um, what were the things that because you guys were popping like right out of the gates? I remember in 2019, I was across the hall visiting Patrick Patterson. Okay, yeah. Um, and I came over. I didn't know you were associated with uh-huh. this at first. Uh-huh. Um, I actually just recently. I didn't. I don't know why. I didn't. I just never knew. Yeah. Um, and I remember seeing the bar was full. This place was hopping. I was like, oh, that's nice. I like to see that. So give give the listeners some context. Yeah. Um, you were in Newmarket. We talked about where that is on mm-hmm. the other side of the bay, mm-hmm. about 20, 30-minute drive, depending on which way, no matter which way you go, really. Um, we're now in Portsmouth. We're not in downtown, but mm-hmm. we're in the center of the, the town. Uh, we're in a mill building. Mm-hmm. Uh, paint the picture of what where we are in this town and what you think is different about this space. Mm-hmm. I mean, are, let me ask you this. And it's, it's very... I'm asking more personal questions than I recognize yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But are are you more profitable here as far as your percent profit than you were at the joinery? Oh, uh, uh, a, a thousand times. I mean, it's, it's I mean not a thousand times percentage wise, but we are that'd be great. We, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> um, no, we. Um, I think if someone who teaches restaurant finance or economics or, or or anything looked at our profit and loss statement, I think they could use it as an example in a book. Except maybe one the one category is. Uh, they would say that our labor budget is too high. Um, but I don't care about that number as long as the number at the end is good. Like the, the rent matches up. The everything. So you kind of build everything. People who open restaurants, the, the first kind of unchangeable number you get is your rent. And so you say, okay, well, rent, in my experience, needs to be this percentage. of For this concept, it's got to be this percentage, right? And then you have prime, which is, you know, all, everything you buy and everyone you pay. And you add those two things together and they're supposed to be 60%. And they change a lot depending on industry, right? So fast food, very high labor, very low product cost, and and um, it's, so it kind of mat. It changed. It changed. A lot of restaurants run like thirty thirty for the two two percentages, um, or try to keep their food costs lower because they know their labor is going to go over. Um, so I think we were busy from the beginning, but I also think so to paint the picture of the West End. This is where everyone actually lives. Downtown is beautiful. It is historical. It's a huge attractor to why people come here. Very few people live there. Um, and this neighborhood and this building in particular, um, we're very close to kind of the grocery store where everyone shops in town. There's some other local businesses all around us. Um, but these two buildings from the time that I moved here sat empty. Um, a long, long time ago, this is, this building is called the 1884 house. What's when it was built. There's a big placard on the side that says built in 1884 by Frank Jones, who was, I don't know if any history buffs going to get upset with me, but he was basically a robber baron. He, you know, he he did all kinds of different businesses, but one thing a robber he, baron. Yeah, I mean he was that era of ultra rich um, at the expense of at the expense else. of everybody else. Yeah, yeah. so um, unfortunately, era it seems like we're getting back into. Um, but he he had this brewery, which at a time was I, I believe it was largest or one of the largest breweries in the country, where it rivaled um, you know Anheuser Busch and all those things. So there's these these two buildings. Um, one of them was where they brewed the beer. One was where they bottled the beer, and then. 
the kind of low slung building over where Mojo's and all that stuff is. That was the malt. The reason that's called the Malt House Exchange is that was the Malt House. So they had a perforated floor. They poured the grain. They put water on it. It malted. And they brought it over here. Made it into beer. There used to be a train track that drove right by here that took the beer down to Boston and everywhere else to sell it. Um, what was the name of that brewery? It was called the Frank Jones Brewing Company. Okay. Um, and there's still some old memorabilia, I think, over at Cornerstone. They have a couple things. And um, so there's this cool history of kind of the local industry in this building. But then this building sat empty for a long time. I think the other building, maybe it was this one, but I think it was the other one. There was a hot dog company that was here at some point in the 70s where they like... I think they even like maybe based on some of the pictures i think they may have even slaughtered here they brought like live animals in and they made them into they bring the whole animal here if all uh, you need is lips and asses uh, yeah i don't know <laughs> um, uh, but there was you know there was something happening here um in these buildings but they sat empty for a long long time and so um eric chinberg and his company they're the ones who redeveloped these buildings and um he's the same person who developed the building in Newmarket, and he was the you know, one of the, or in the main involved financial partner at joinery. And so when he was doing this building, he said, okay, there's this tiny space. Um, I think you could do something with it. This is what the kind of specs are. And so he basically gave me a 900 square foot, you know, almost perfect square said, okay, this is the side of the building it's on. This is how much space you're going to have. And then, you know, and then, Tell me what you what you think. Well, you know what's it going to cost? What's how can you how can we do this? How's that all going to work? You know how's it going to work with your responsibilities at joinery? And so I went to work and I I first sent it to um, a guy named Glenn Medor, who's a uh, equipment sales guy um, at a company called North Shore Wholesale in Massachusetts, and he um, is very good with design, super solid kitchen designer. And I said, hey, I want to build it's a tiny space. I want to build the smallest kitchen that I can where I can reach everything. I can touch everything. So that if I do go to survival mode, you know, I want to do this, but also as we know, as restaurateurs, right, you're renting the kitchen, the square footage, of the kitchen costs same as the square footage of the restaurant, but it doesn't make any money. Mm-hmm. So how many seats can I get in here? And that was the first math problem. So, okay. So how many seats can I fit if I do this? And then, and then we just kind of went from there. And so, um, well, the cool thing about this space, and I think it's a one thing that I like about you're in a mill building. Mm-hmm. The cool thing about mill buildings is they're very industrial. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you're also the first tenant in this space. We're the first tenant, yes, in this space. The, yeah. the rest of the mill was going, and so, so Cornerstone, for example, is in our same building, right? And that's yeah. another mill space. It's big, it's open, it has that like iron and wood aesthetic. And I, because I already had that at joinery, I said, okay, we're going to be in this mill, but I don't want it to feel that way. I want it to feel. To me, other than the fact that it only has windows on one side, it's a mill. It, it feels like a little, like standalone um, building. Like you come in here, and it's it's no, supposed to be yeah, magical. Like you, you just left. Like you don't. You left sure. the hallway. You've left whatever's outside. You're not because I, I think that matters. And I also thought about the the overarching concept of Botanica in my head was I think about like our grandparents' generation, right? So I'm in my early 40s. So um, my grandparents were doing they're living the life that i'm living of trying to raise kids and and work and figure stuff out that was that was like in the 50s right and so even in our post-war boom in america where economically people are doing pretty well and the country's growing quickly dining out was just it was just rare it was rare and it was special we eat out more than anyone and we eat out so much that we almost don't even care anymore which is 
depressing and sad and I think has led to a lot of convenience food and mediocre restaurants just because people are just going to eat out. So who cares? Like let them just get a wrap somewhere and just, or even even worse. I mean, I guess, I guess like a takeout sandwich. And I don't have a problem with that. It's more like the the fake fine dining. Like let's charge them a fine dining price and give them essentially fast food. Yeah. And so I was like, you know, when our grandparents went out, they went to, you know, a, a little, you know, I think of it as this romantic way in my head, this little French place, little Italian place where the owner was there. They knew every, you know, and they, and they made them feel like this was special because it probably was special. It was their anniversary. It was a birthday. Somebody got a raise. You know, they didn't go out like we go out. And so and so I was like, we need to you need to walk in here. It needs to feel magical because it needs to be that we are. This is special again. Yeah, I don't care if you went out five times this week. Tonight's going to be special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So going back to the this idea of what you started doing differently here that made it so profitable, mm-hmm. you started talking about the rent. Is mm-hmm. where this all, mm-hmm. the physical space we're in. Um, is being in a mill building and having basically, you can, I feel like in a mill building you can do whatever your eye can see. Like whatever your mind's eye can see, there's so much flexibility because you're basically in a big sp- hollow space that like you there's a lot of possibilities moving into that space as far as what you can do is 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 the rent can like pretty reasonable because of the fact that you're in a shared space i think our rent is reasonable compared with downtown i would not say it is inexpensive i think however i think i i'm okay with paying for the location because we are we have the the traffic and, and we have the, You're surrounded by communities yeah we have people so it, the parking and all that stuff so I think it's you know I think like I said the rent's pretty much inflexible in most places so you kind of work backwards from that so the rent dictates in Portsmouth for example that and a lot of other older small towns right tiny expensive real estate or, or high rents means tiny kitchens because the kitchens need to be as small as possible in order for the restaurant to make money which in a tiny kitchen generally means um, if you're cooking real food from scratch that when someone wants to be in there for lunch is when you're getting ready for dinner. So, you know, I've been here since nine and I didn't cook anyone lunch. I, I was getting ready for dinner. And so we don't serve lunch in most restaurants in Portsmouth that are that are the I don't want to use the wrong word, the, the nicer restaurants, I guess I'll say, or special occasion restaurants. Most of them do not serve lunch because it's not possible to serve lunch while you're getting ready for dinner in a tiny kitchen. Um, and so I think that the rent, the rent and the real estate certainly do dictate certain things, but unlike joinery, for example, when I came here, it was a, just a big box. So I got to decide, I mean, there's still, <laughs> it starts getting limited pretty quickly once you put mechanical systems in place and you figure out, you know, where the furnace is going to go and the water and the, this, the electrical lines and how this can only be here. And there's gotta yeah, be, it's like when you move into a new house, you're like, look at all the space I have. Yeah. Then, then you, you put your shit things. in it and you're like, where did all the space go? <laughs> well, when you're building from an empty box too, it's like, there's, there's things that people don't even think about. Like there's a grease trap in the parking lot that has to be there. It's mandated by the city. It has to be the run from the restaurant can only be so long to the grease trap. And so, you know, the sink where the central point of collection, I think it's 50 feet or something like that. There's a, or else you have to put an interceptor in and then the interceptor. Now that takes up space in your restaurant. And so there are all of these things that have to happen. And so the space starts shrinking pretty quickly. And so theoretically, I could put the kitchen and the bar and the tables wherever I wanted, right? It's an empty box. I could put them wherever I want, but there's really only one, there was only one smart place to put them. But then, so then I think from that design, I got to look at that design and say, okay, well, if this is the only way it's going to work, then is that going to work for me? Like I, I don't, I wasn't so 
obsessed with the project that like we have to do this. I, I don't, you know, I could find something else to do. Um, but, and I think a lot of people have to, a lot of smart restaurateurs, I think have that in their head where you've got several things you want to do a lot of concepts. And then you find a space that you can think you can afford in a neighborhood. You think you want to be in spend time in where you think you can attract a staff. And then you determine which one of your concepts would be the most applicable to that space. I think there's a lot of people who really try to cram and especially inexperienced restaurateurs, younger people. Um, so you, you lean in the direction of start with the space. Then yeah, you can't change that. You can't change the location. Yeah. You can't change your competitors. Right. So like, I'm not super worried about our competitors, but I'm also not going to open up, you know, the fifth Spanish tapas bar in a tiny town. And I'm not saying we have five. That would be ridiculous. But, you know, I'm not (laughs) you can open the fifth pizza place and likely still do well. But their pizza is unique. And so you still have to be cognizant of what else is around you and what is missing. And that's something that I think you did really well here. And I think you I think focusing on the gin in the the brand you know botanica restaurant and gin bar mm-hmm. i think when you opened in 2019 gin was a really and it still is a very uh it was an emerging uh liquor mm-hmm. you know it's it has low calories like there's it wasn't like it was always it was never the forefront but like there was a kind of like a like a gin like a surgeons or whatever mm-hmm. we would call it mm-hmm. so i feel like the timing was really great with that you, you, you're telling people like this is what we do that no one else does and there's a lot of people that want that during this time so they know to come here uh and then how, how were you what were you doing you started with french food right mm-hmm. that was kind of like what what was that uh cna that you started doing french cno was a french CNO, restaurant sorry. and i also worked at an amazing restaurant in when my wife went to law school in williamsburg virginia i worked at a place called the blue talent bistro um which you know, traditional French, um, they're both American, but it both worked in France and, um, had like this amazing so you're training back to your roots. Yeah. And also I think when you cook, I mean, you're cooking Western food, if you, if that's what you're cooking, um, then most, a lot of it, I mean, I'm going to upset someone who's Italian probably, but a lot of it is, catch Tory, be is careful. a lot of it is rooted in France. So everyone, if yeah. someone says, Oh, well, this is a new American restaurant. Like, that all that new American food is based in in French food because French food was what was considered fancy in America for a long time. And yeah. so I think it's great that people are opening all kinds of restaurants. But I also think that because we were so excited about, you know, Spanish and um, different South American foods and Asian foods and all, I mean, all these beautiful things people open. I'm, I'm really glad they did that. However, I also am cognizant of time and like where I so. I'm not particularly French in my family history. I'm sure I have some French blood. That's not, that's not my thing. I didn't, I didn't get trained in France. I didn't, uh, you know, I've read a lot of books. I, I, I try to pay attention, but I also think like it, it, there's something innate about being a chef, um, at least a Western trained chef and, and, and French food and the, the comfort and the hospitality. I think France took a back seat for a while because people were so excited about other things. And I think fine dining had become to be associated with being, Pretentious stodgy pretentious yeah. not good oh that's that old place where your grandparents go you're paying for the linen service yeah, exactly <laughs> and so but i thought you know we can put these things back together we can make fine dining you know um put life back into it again and i thought that mattered and i also thought speaking of the real estate and the, the other part of the, of the of the question opening up the first fine dining restaurant in an emerging or busy neighborhood is almost always a good idea. Yeah. If you can be first, like everyone's like, why don't we have our own restaurant in this neighborhood? Why don't we have a fine dining restaurant? 
I, I don't know. We should, right? There's yeah. enough people here to support it. We should have one. And yeah. so now we do. And that's definitely been a lesson I've learned. It's, it's uh, going to where the growth is about to happen. And it's getting that timing. And that can be a gamble because sometimes, you know, there's plans. Yeah, like, like the, the a plan might fall through where mm-hmm. there's going to be 10 condos built or 10 you know, condo buildings built and then somebody lost the deal and it became a supermarket. Well, and that's part of the, 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 the lure and the constant kind of, for me, the constant frustration with new market is that, where joinery was is that new market has been on the cusp for 50 years. It's that damn bay, man. You know, always give me the next place. It's always give me the next place. Well, geographically it's probably not going to happen, right? It's, yeah. it's just, you don't have to go there. There's no reason anyone has to go there. So it just is what it is. And the people who have been successful there, um, I think it's awesome. They've, they really leaned into what was already there, who was already there. They weren't looking to pull people from outside and they said, we can make this for our community. Yeah. I think that's awesome. So we have 22 minutes left. Let's do it. Um, I really wanted to still, so we, the, the, the things that's happening different here in, mm-hmm. in your opinion, that's making you more profitable. Is it, do you, is it, I mean, we talked about rent. Um, is it because you think the concept matches the, the demographic much better where it's what people was, is that, it? is it just hitting better with your target market or are you doing things operating or operationally to keep your expenses down so you have more room for profit or are you charging? Are you, is your, did your, your zero shift where now you're mm-hmm. baking in profitability where you're taking your profit and, and you're, you're factoring that in? Like what's going on? What's different? So some of that factor of the, 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 the profitability factor of being able to charge what you need to charge, a lot of that went into the initial design, right? So the silver was expensive and the glassware was expensive and that's all a lot of money to put out there in the but beginning. it looks great in here. Exactly. And people touch it and they, you don't want them to look at their bill at the end and be like, that was expensive. You want them to look and be like, man, that was a nice dinner. Yeah. Like they, they, everyone, we all know how much it costs. Yeah. It's written on the paper in front of you. You know what, you know what it costs. You know, if you're going to come again, you know, if like, or, so I think like the, you got to hit everything to hit the price point correctly. And so, you know, is this an everyday restaurant for most people? No. Um, Portsmouth is rapidly gaining influence and I'm sure there are people, you know, <laughs> You can look at the prices and say what I mean. I don't, I don't think our, price, our our prices I know are based on the rest of the market are not high. But so, to some people, they, they it can seem. You look at the price like ah oh, thirty four dollars for a steak. You know I'm like well yeah, you know but you it, can't trust the consumer because the trust the consumer's perception of value of food is so twisted because our food system's fucked. Yeah. So sure. like you know like part of my language. But yeah. Yeah. Sorry. To cut no, I've short. been trying to use that word yeah. this whole time. You, do, you know, <laughs> don't worry about it anymore. Um, no. So I think um, I'm not. I can create the environment where if like, I don't want to eat a $34 steak with a cheap ass knife and I don't want to get a $12 cocktail in a cheap ass glass. And I want it to feel so if everything feels special, then at the end it is a nice dinner, not an expensive dinner. And that's what the feeling you want them to walk away with. And yeah. so I think that definitely helps. I think also when we are talking about not being everything to everyone, limiting what you're doing is more, kind of builds in a margin of profitability and limiting what you're doing for yourself. So the way you run yourself. So I talked about being able to do a lot of the work here myself. So I still do the prep work. I still cover for everyone. I'm, I I am the relief valve for everything. However, because I'm the relief valve for everything, I'm not scheduled for as many straight up shifts. And so I think a lot of restaurateurs and where I was when I was running two places is that you have yourself, you're, you're overscheduled, you're maxed out. And then you finally get to a day off and you, and then something happens and you have to go in and help. And I have a friend, a very close friend who runs, I think he has three, maybe four restaurants now in Virginia. And we opened the boot together and 
he always was like, hey, listen, if you're if you haven't worked a shift in two weeks and you got to come in and cover for somebody, he's like, you show up and you're like the superstar. He's like, you're in a good mood. They're all happy that you're there because they don't see you as much, and like you and you have this great night together. He's like, if you've just worked fourteen shifts in a row and somebody else does something and you got to show up now because it's your baby and you got to take care of it. You roll in there. He's like, even if you don't say it, he's like, your mental attitude is what is wrong with you all? Why do I have to do everything? He's like, and that is bad for you. It's bad for your staff. It's bad for your guests. And so I try to, I am not always good at this. It's one of my weaknesses, but I try to keep that in mind. So that is different. You know, the built-in profitability is different. And Let's go back to that built-in profitability because I the 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 term profit first. If you guys haven't heard of that, is something that I like to echo as much as possible. And it's literally that. It's what is what do I need? What do I need mm-hmm. to cover my liabilities and to live the lifestyle that I need to be happy and healthy? What is that? Then you reverse engineer it and you take that profit first, and then everything that comes after that is what determines your growth. Right. So. Mm-hmm. You take, but traditionally people take whatever's left over. Take what's left. Yeah. Yeah. And what this is saying is like, no, take what you need. And then whatever's left over determines how you scale and how you grow. Yes. Yeah, so you can have, it, you can kind of have like a list of expenses that are coming off an account and then, and taking what's left over, or you can actually have a budget, which is what most businesses do where they say, this is based on what we need this is what we are willing to spend. Yeah. Not, this is what we spent and this is what's left. Exactly. Right. So, not being everything to everyone means I'm, you know, we might have to run out of that, that liquor this week because it's not in the budget. Yeah. It's not that we don't have the money. It's that we said this week, the budget for liquor was $3,000 and that case is going to put us at, you know, 3,100. And so yeah. we're not going to buy it this week. Yeah. And someone might not get the exact kind of tequila they want when they come to the gin bar. And is that the end of the world? It is. If you make it the end of the world, yeah. especially in your own head. Yeah. But for them, no, I don't think that's the end of the world. So what are you doing different, operationally different now? You're bake, you say you're baking in profitability. What does that look like on paper? How do you do that? If you're, if you're telling people how to do what you did to do this mm-hmm. approach differently, what would you tell them to do? So budgeting is one. Definitely budgeting is huge. Forecasting, not just taking whatever comes in the door, saying like, well, you know, this week I think we're going to do this. I think this is what's going to happen. This is what happened last week, this week last year. This is what happened the week before this. You know, this is what this is what I think the sales are going to be. And so I have this idea in my head of what or not, not in my head, these real numbers of okay, so well, this is what this is what it should cost us to to serve that number of guests. Yeah. And then if you do that and you're ready for it, then anything extra is is, is really extra. Looking around too, there's a lot of two tops right here. Oh yeah. So yeah, that's <laughs> that was a big difference. Um yeah. Calling ourselves, even calling ourselves Botanica Restaurant and Gin Bar, right? This is a, a 36 seat restaurant. It's a little bit ridiculous to say, like, well, we are also this other people. People is, see it online; they think it's they think it's huge. Yeah, and they'll. Well, it's in a giant building. It's in a giant building. They they think like it, you know they think they're making a reservation a hundred seat restaurant or whatever or bigger. You know, maybe the bars have people. And then they come in like, oh, is this the only? Is this the whole place? Like, but, but the bar is a unique service area. So having it as okay, this is in the best place to eat in the world to me. Is at the re- is at the bar of a fine dining restaurant, yeah. right? So, why not design the whole place, the whole small place, to feel like the bar of a fine dining restaurant? That, that bar fills up too. Yeah, I, I, whenever I walk by this place, it's popping. Yeah. Um. And but if you're just cool a, yeah, so you gotta. Some, sorry, go sorry. Ahead. No, if you're just a bar, right? If you have that thing, if you're just Botanica and it's fine dining but a little too pretentious, then no one strolls in at four o'clock to have a cocktail, right? But so, some of our best guests 
came in at four o'clock was opening at four that's opera also operational that's a decision it's sometimes a huge pain in the ass generally people just drink from four to five or get a little snack here and there sometimes someone books a reservation for six people at four o'clock and they want full dinner and we have to be ready for that right so that means we gotta start a little earlier we gotta instead of that like most people who worked in a kitchen know that like that feeling you get at four thirty when you're like oh shit i gotta set up my station i gotta finish this prep like and you start getting ready because you don't know what's gonna happen at five and then generally nothing happens till six because you opened at five i wanted to be busy at five especially in new england in the winter our, our window of when people eat dinner gets really short was so, the difference between two and three turns you know yeah it could be the difference between two and three turns on the weekend um i wanted to be busy at five o'clock i wanted it to not feel weird i didn't want the table that i didn't want the four top that comes in at five to feel like they were the first table and i also wanted to be i mean in some ways the unfairness of the restaurant world is like that busy begets busy so when I think, ah, oh, there's too many people in here and it's too loud, that makes people want to come in even more. You know, putting, having a reservation system, like, I mean, one of your questions talks about, like, technology, right? So using um, something like Talk, which I think is incredible, like being able to uh, control the flow of reservations. Yeah, and that's that's a big issue with our industry is that we use this broken model of 10% profit. We all rinse and repeat, you know, cut and paste what we were taught in prior concepts that we just don't, like the business model is fucked up. Like that, like why should this table cost the same on a Tuesday than it does on a Friday when this table is in more demand? It's, it's supply and demand. Yeah. I mean, ticketing is exciting. I think some restaurants are getting really good at that. Um, you know, I have a friend who's running a tasting menu place where I think, you know, she offers the same thing on Thursday and Wednesday at a reduced price. And then what she's offering on the weekend is the same tasting menu, but at, at the regular price. But she's actually doing it. She's marketing it one way and probably it's from my restaurant brain. She's doing it another way, right? Where like we think she's charging us less during the week. What she's really doing is charging more on the weekend for the same thing, which has more demand. Yeah. So she's she's being very smart. She's a very intelligent person. She's created this beautiful restaurant and, she, and it's a super smart decision. But it's as marketed as though we're giving you a discount to draw you in on a Wednesday. But really what we're doing is charging you what you should be paying on a Friday. So like Friday at 7:30, that steak should probably cost $52 instead of 34 that it costs on on Wednesday. Um we don't do pricing that way in restaurants and that's that that's okay. I don't need to create surge pricing, but I am going to pick somewhere in between, you know, kind of when I am pricing like okay, well how is it all going to add like you talk about renting the seat, you know, how does this all add up at the end of the week, right? So we just as many the table costs the same on Friday generally people spend more because they're out and they drink more but like I do think that it, there is a there is something there in the future for restaurants to to expand on that idea of surge pricing or demand based pricing or for sure um, so the big things that we identified um, for, for as far as why you're more profitable in this concept uh, looks like you're utilizing the space better more probably more seats per square inch. Definitely. Space. Yep. So you're getting a higher, I mean, you're not getting as many seats, but you're, you're squeezing out for the space you have a better volume, like a, the ratio is better. And it's laid out in a way where fewer staff can take care of more people. Yeah. Right. So with the, close to the tables are together as long that as that was another big thing. Yeah. I thought. Like the Staffing. labor expense yeah. is probably much different. So, so the you, kitchen can be run with two people. If I am, sometimes I can be one of those people if I need to be right yeah. now, I'm fortunate in that I have two great people. So I'm the extra person, Nice. but not many people can say that right when now. I don't have them, then I'm one of those people, right? So I already so big, building in profitability means I'm getting paid no matter what, right? So I have a salary I'm that I pay myself because that's a requirement of my job, right? I just like they all get paid, I get paid too. Yeah. So if I get paid and that pays for my life, um, and 
and then the profit margin is low, it's not really the end of the world because technically my... So when I look at our number, I think, oh, man, I wish I'd hit this percentage for margin. But it's if I go back and add in my salary, because that's also part of the profit margin, you know, maybe not all of it, because some of it, if it wasn't me, it'd have to be somebody else. So, if, But if I'm a prep cook, sometimes I'm an overpaid prep cook. Sometimes I'm an overpaid dishwasher. Sometimes I'm an overpaid, you know, bar back. And so I think, okay, if I was really going to fill all these jobs, you know, what would that cost versus what I want to pay myself? And so... And maybe someday I will fill those jobs and say, okay, well, the profitability has grown to a point where I can pay someone else to do all this stuff. Yeah. I mean, right now, I like being here. I think it's important that I'm here. I think also that does increase profitability so by can, being here. You said two people in the, the kitchen. Two people in the kitchen. I can run the front with... Um, right now, we run it with a host and two servers on the... So five people. Five people. And we were at a sixth person, sometimes a seventh person on the weekend. Then we have a dishwasher when we, when we have one. And how many people did it take to run the... The joinery. Well, joinery ran with the same number of people. It took three people to run the kitchen the right way, plus a dishwasher. Everything was just so far. Everything was so spread out. So, service staff, it absolutely three. took, yeah, three on the weekend. So, the service staff was similar, but they were just going a lot further, which slowed everything down. Like, just yeah. the geographic, the way the space was laid out. And I think about this now, you know, there's a lot of projects available because of the pandemic and people mainly, I think I don't think a lot of people are going out of business, but I think a lot of people are examining what they want to spend their time on. And so restaurants are decide people are choosing to close. And this is another thing about business where if you run, you know, I don't know, some kind of distribution business and you choose to shut down your business because you don't want to do it anymore. People are like, Oh yeah, that business closed. But if you choose to shut down your restaurant, it's like, Oh, they failed. That restaurant failed. Yeah. Like maybe that owner, that that owner might have walked away with half a million dollars and chosen to do something else with their life, right? If I choose to leave here and I don't have a direct successor who wants to run it as Botanica, then Botanica will close. And that's okay. And someone else who I've worked with in the past might come in here and turn it into, you know, Ray's Fish Bar. And that's that's great. And that doesn't mean that Botanica failed. It means that I left. And so. The chapter is closed. Yeah, so I think that's the other double standard with restaurants are the different kind of, like we talked about already, like we got to take ourselves seriously so they take us seriously. All Did you factor stuff. in owner's pay at the joinery? Was that something you were doing then? Um, so at joinery, I got paid a salary. Um, but the what was left over was never <laughs> was never really positive, so it never really mattered. But like, you know, but I also didn't, you know, I accepted probably less than I actually wanted to make because I was like, well, I want this to work on paper as yeah. opposed to saying like, well, wait a minute, this isn't going to work. So if it's not gonna work, if it's not gonna work in the beginning, it's not gonna work later. And yeah. like same was kind of like borrowing the, borrowing the money and b- buying the nice stuff, not opening on a string, right? If you can't afford that fridge today, you cannot afford the better one in three years, right? You need and you really can't afford to have your crappy secondhand fridge break down on Friday night. So I thought it was worth like we're gonna expect the best the goal is to be the best so we this is a whole philosophy right we are the best that i'm not saying we are the best i'm saying that the philosophy is that we are want to be the, the best mindset the mindset and so that means that we need to have the best fridge and the best seats and the best silverware like we need to or at least what we think of as the best got it so if there's a lesson that you can distill from um everything we discussed today yeah. into yeah. where you are today with the, the level of profitability that you have, like what is the big takeaway? What, what, what's, what's happening? What's the thing that the listeners need to, to go home with or to go into their business with today from this, this interview that's going to make them better. So I think you really have to sit down and figure out what you want. And I think that is hard because in hospitality, we're always trying to think about what somebody else wants. And once you know what you want, then like you said, you have to reverse engineer it to make sure that that happens. Because I think a lot of people end up working very hard to run the restaurant that they didn't want to run. 
There are a lot of very, especially cooks who are so the most incredible hardworking people that you could meet um, who are creative, who really say like, you know what? I've got this thing that people love. I know it could work. And then they get backed into some corner, either financially or because they're trying to be everything to everyone where that they look up in five years and they're not even serving the thing they want to serve anymore because, you know, they're trying to grab this customer, grab that customer, or they're obsessed with something that's happened on social media. And, you know, now we're competing with people who are thousands of miles away from us and in a different income bracket, as far as like what we're supposed to be able to offer people. Um, and so I think that being able to look inside at who you are and what you want and how that fits into what your community will yeah. support. And maybe is, where you need to go to do what you want. If you, if you want, yeah, it might not be that, here, you might need to move away yeah. that's, and that's okay too. And, or you might need to say like, you know what I, and you might need, and projects might need to have a, a, a shelf life. I mean, Botanica has it is now past that, but like my wife and I had a deal that was like, Hey, if this isn't working in this amount of time, like you're going to do something else. Right. And yeah. it's going to be hard and it's going to be sad, but you're going to go do something else. Yeah. And the pandemic kind of changed some of that because we were only 14 months old when that hit here. And, um, but you know, luckily now I get to stay because <laughs> it's working, but, um, but you know, it, it has to work. Um, and when you see all these things of people doing these things for their businesses and with their businesses that you think like, you know, Oh, well, that can never happen at a restaurant. It's like, no, well, you deserve that too, man. Like, if you want your business to, you know, do a one-time payout so you can buy that, you know, car you want cash or you want to pay yourself more so you can rent that apartment you want to live in or you want, you know, have a kid or whatever. Whatever it is, whatever your financial goal is that is next, like, it is possible to get that from a restaurant, but you have to, like you said, you have to take it for yourself first and then figure out if the business can handle it. Yeah. And I'm not saying you need to be greedy, but, like, it is essentially... I mean, all of capitalism is based in greed. So why you might as well get on the train and do it in a way that doesn't hurt anybody else. I, you know, I, I, that mentality that all capitalism stems off greed. I think that it can change. I, have, are you familiar with the term of like conscious capitalism? Mm-hmm. Of like literally like everything you do, like can we create win-win situations and how I think that, that there's an insurgence of changing the way we think. I don't think capitalism is inherently evil. I just think that it has kind of a bad name and, if we start thinking about how can we use business to create opportunity and to do good, and then we put that good at the forefront of who we are and what our brand is, and we echo it as much as possible as mm-hmm. a unique selling proposition or a differentiator, like it, it pays to to do good. Good doing good is good business. Yeah, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is like I don't. Greed's maybe the wrong term. Like greed is not you know what avarice is the sin in the Bible, and then the, from that you get greed. But like greed is not. I don't think you're wrong in the, in the sense that that was that is true and has been true that people are manipulated by their own greed and they think selfishly and I think that's I think that is a becoming more of a way of the past. I hope so. Yeah, I think I mean I, think, I don't think we're changing capitalism, right? So I don't we're not going to get rid of the system, right? So I want to thrive in the system that we have and also be able to be happy in the system we have and I think there is a way to offer opportunity to other people like you I think you need to take what you need, but it doesn't mean you need to take all of it. I guess that's, yeah. I think that's probably what you're getting at and what, what makes sense to me over time. I think the people who get into trouble are the people who think they need to take all of it. If you think all of your employees are idiots who are doing the bare minimum. And, and you, if you think of them as these greedy individuals who are like just here trying to suck their, you know, hourly pay out of you and they're not, they're not going to never going to do anything extra. And they're never going to, then you're never going to do anything extra for them. Mm-hmm. And, and if you believe that it will, it will be true. Yeah. But you can also choose to believe that, 
we are all part of this special project together. And yes, I started the project. And yes, I took the financial risk. And yes, I will reap the largest financial reward from it. However, that doesn't mean that I need to nickel and dime you. You know, there are restaurants who steal tips. There are restaurants who do horrible on things. Well, there's restaurants who do time theft on their cooks because they didn't punch in or whatever. They don't bother. Or they're desperate and they're afraid to admit where they are. Like, you know, like, I think that's part of it. It's probably pride where, like, they're hurting and, like, they're for, they, they, they have. Yeah, and you think, well, the only way we're going to pay rent this month is if I steal these person's tips, right? Yeah. So you're already done. That yeah. business should be closed. Exactly. And you should all move on. And especially now when we are short on workers in the industry, there are people who are doing this right, and some people might need to close in order to free up those employees to go places where they can be more productive, happier, and better compensated for their labor. Yeah, awesome stuff. I've loved this conversation, man. Uh, typically, this is where we ask, you know, how does the industry need to transform, and how can we? But I think we already you're, you're getting into that right now. You're, you know, like yeah, I mean, this is what I think about all the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it, it's it's coming from a place of how do we create win win situations? How can I put uh, how can I take my profit, take what I need, and also give my people what they need? Mm-hmm. And then how do we reverse engineer that? And um, I think a big overarching theme to today's conversation, too, is, is is scaling down, keeping your overhead as little as possible. And I think also what seems to be happening here is that maybe there is just – maybe the concept in general is hitting up better with its with its target market. Is there is there an issue with – it's not an issue. It's a good thing. But are you doing more volume here per, per square foot? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think we definitely are – we are a very busy 36-seat restaurant, right? Yeah. So the – and when we put the patio on too, like the numbers that we did this summer were beyond what I thought we could do. And it almost broke the system, you know, as far as the, uh, it was put, I was putting too much on myself and too much on my staff. Right. So we, then we reduce a little bit as far as what we're willing to book. Like just cause we have seats doesn't mean you get to sit in them. Right. Yeah. So like we plan this out in a way, um, fortunately using software, I used to book all the reservations, you know, through an email account with, uh, you know, on paper and it was, it's how I was taught to do it. it it's not the best way to do it. Um, you know, being able to control it through software so that it just, you're always available to book, but you're also never booking something that, cause you, you can't make a mistake where you say like, Oh, I shouldn't have taken that table at this time. It's going to screw up the kitchen. Like that you already, you thought about this when you had time to think about it and you built it into the system. Yeah. Um, we got to get the, the speed round <laughs> done. And, yeah. uh, I want to respect your time. So I yeah. love this conversation, yeah. man. We're going to take one more quick break to thank your sponsors. And we'll be right back to bust out a speed round. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more, all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system to 
you're already using, like Toast, to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. I don't need to tell you that it's harder than ever right now to be a restaurateur. The cost of goods are going up. Labor expenses are going up. People don't want to work in the industry. Anybody who had experiences has gone on to different verticals or different industries. And we are just stuck with a lot of people who are very green and how, how do we increase sales if nobody knows how to sell? Well, you empower them with the right tools. And one tool out there that you need to know about is called SRV, which stands for Study Restaurant Variety, created by Roger Bodwin from Restaurant Rockstars, a name I'm sure you recognize for his multiple appearances on the show, and his co-founder and co-creator, Zaylin Jacobson, who you'll be working with. This is a tool that will help your team memorize your menu, your uh, your culture, uh, everything, anything you need to train them, your entire training manual is now in an app and accessible anywhere. And really what it is, is an interactive learning tool. And it's a great way to invest in your team and to make them feel valued. There's a lot of data supporting that. This is how the next generation of professionals prefer to learn. So if you need a tool out there to empower your staff, to train your staff, uh, to, to give them the knowledge they need to be sales stars, then check out srvnow.com click the link that says request a demo and that will bring you to a page where you fill out your information the very last field make sure you let them know that restaurant unstoppable sent you their way they will pay us a commission of one thousand five hundred dollars if you use that link and you you sign up with them and i just have to say thank you in advance we're trying to take restaurant unstoppable to the next level and this is one way we can do that by just spreading the word about these tools and uh, I believe in what they're doing over there. So you're in good hands. Uh, thank you in advance. All right. Do it now. All right. We are back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor? A habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? And try to answer these questions with one word to a sentence. It factor. I think I'm harder on myself than anyone else could ever be. Got it. What is your biggest weakness? I think that's the same thing. What is one question you ask or something you look for during the interview process? Uh, and it's que- some of these questions are the same questions I asked you the first time around. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see how you answer. Now in the interview process, I want to see some, a level of engagement about anything. I don't, not necessarily work, but like, what do you do outside of work and what gets you excited? Got it. What is your biggest challenge today? balancing my personal and professional life how are you overcoming that challenge by not taking on things that i know i can't do Mm. what is one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team so a way to be a way to act core value you have to be nice to each other we come first like it's not uh the guests aren't first we're first yeah what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your staff? So something that's common within the four walls of your restaurants, but not common throughout the industry. So I'm not the star. We are not the stars. They are the stars. And so I think I know that sounds like the opposite of like we come first and they don't come first. I think of it like 
if I'm running a, a theater and I have a musical act coming in, they might send me a writer with ridiculous demands. And but I'm still the one I'm going to pay them to be there. However, I'm still the one who's it, the theater manager is still in charge. Right. So we are in charge of the experience. And it's not about us. It's about them. This is the hospitality industry. It's not the chef industry. It's not the server industry or the bartender industry. It's great if they like us and it's great if they want to be around us. But they are the the star of the show that we are putting on every night. Got it. What is one book that is a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner? If I got to pick one, I, I think... I still think Kitchen Confidential is the best book, but read read about restaurants. Yeah, we have uh, yeah. Dan right above our head right now. Uh, yeah, definitely a great book. Uh, what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Take care of their staff. What is one piece of technology you've recently adopted that's had a huge impact on communication, profitability, efficiency, anything along those lines? So we mentioned a couple times, but uh, talk, the reservation system talk is incredible, and it's changed the ability to control pacing and booking and, and what we setting lines for ourselves about what we will and won't do so that when someone calls last minute, I'm not like, Oh, do I want to take that 12 top? Like, no, I already decided I don't want to take a 12 top. Yeah. It's built in. Okay. So, so you can create parameters to filter out things that. Yeah. Like we don't, you can't book a reservation for more than a certain number of people. You have to call me. Got and it. if you call me and I, then I have parameters for myself. So I think like, you, you can't all sit down at seven thirty on Friday night. We know that doesn't work. So we're not gonna let you do it. We're going to maximize, profitability while also controlling the pacing so that everyone has the experience you want to offer yeah you build the system and that's the cool thing about technology today and how people should look at technology it's not an additional cost it is theoretically but at the same time it's doing something that you could never do as well on your own you can never build that like most of us aren't coders we're not programmers we don't Mm -hmm. build technology Mm -hmm. we don't create systems you're plugging a system into your business which yes is going to give you increase your operational expense but how much more efficient are you going to be because of that like what time are you getting back yeah i think we pay 199 a month for talk right and so if i book one more for top because then i wouldn't have booked because i wasn't hearing into the phone or i didn't get back to the email in time in a month then i paid for it already you used to answer the phone and write down reservations and emails and especially with the pandemic when we were trying to figure it all out like we used to do a, yeah we used to How mostly many hours be manual. A week would you say you're putting? Oh my god! When I was at the height of it, I think the summer, the first summer of the pandemic, I was, I was definitely doing at least two hours a day. But it was the worst two hours a day where it was broken up into a bunch of five minute increments where I'm stopping what I'm doing to do this. So and not do, only it, are you putting in that time, but you're also disrupting th- flow and you have to you're accelerating and recelerating. Yeah, and a lot of the time I was home with my kids. I'm like I'm distracted and I'm trying to do this thing and control it, and it just didn't. It, it wasn't smart. So two hours a day. At least two hours a day, yeah. It was it was a lot. But I felt like we were saving the restaurant, right? So the pandemic made us do crazy things. We're like, well, we got to save this thing, which means I got to book every table I can. And now it's like, no, no, we need to preserve this experience we wanted to create, which means I got to book the tables in the right, smart way in order to make sure that happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, leverage technology where you can, especially going into the future where it doesn't look like the labor situation is going to get Not going to get better, no. Yeah. Um, okay. What is... Well, this is actually the last question. We've, All right. We've come to the end. If you've gotten the news that you're leaving this world tomorrow, all the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants will be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Don't overpromise. One. 
be your toughest critic? Two. And just be nice to the people that are doing things for you. Yeah, awesome stuff, man. A great conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to come back on the show to pick up the conversation where we left off. You were great. I knew you would be. Uh, before we say goodbye, let's call somebody out. That's how I reconnected with you. I'm really trying to do what I can to make this question steer the future of Restaurant Unstoppable. I think success recognizes success. And I think a lot of media outlets in our industry have been kind of infiltrated and I want this to be. I want this to be genuine. I want this to be from the industry for the industry by the industry. So, who do you respect and admire? Uh, and somebody who definitely has something to share with our listeners on how they're unstoppable. So, I highly, highly respect and admire. I mentioned her already with the tasting menu. Um, Rachel Miller. She's located in uh, in Lynn, Massachusetts. Um, she has a. Um, uh, noodle bar and of course now i'm blanking on the name because i'm i, I can't I'm, I'm talking to you but um there's a amazing um she just opened a new thing next to it called sin city supperette oh it's called nightshade nightshade noodle bar it's incredible tasting menu um and we used to work together a long long time ago at the boot she worked for me and she's incredible beautiful rachel miller look out i'm coming after you i'd love to get you on the show and uh, how can we connect if we really enjoyed today's conversation maybe we're in the new hampshire or new england area we're looking for a new job we want to come work with you what's the best way to connect? yeah so um botanica nh.com you can send me a message on that you can go on our instagram uh same same handle and uh you can find me that way and i, I answer all those channels and this is episode 923 head over to restaurant unstoppable.com slash 923 uh we'll have a summary of today's discussion as well as any links uh to, to connect with chef brendan over there uh just can't say it enough chef easy BC, thank you so much for taking the time to come back on the show to share your story and what's been happening here. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thank you. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Chef Brendan VC, for coming on and uh, reconnecting and going deeper. And this is something I'm excited to, to do uh, going into the future of Restaurant Unstoppable. You know, uh, we've had some amazing people on the show. A lot of people ask me, are you ever worried about running out of guests to make an example of and the answer to that question is absolutely freaking not as you know we're about to take off on the road and to, to take restaurant stoppable 100 on site we've had so many people on the show and the show's almost going nine years now i i want to reconnect with my earliest guests i want to find out what the last nine years eight years seven years has looked like and go deeper and that's exactly what we did today we picked up where we left off and we focused on a a six-year period and we just went deep and we got much more granular and that's kind of what i want to do i have rapport with these amazing restaurateurs across the country and we're going to go into their restaurants we're going to pull back layers we're, we're going to capture it all and i'm super excited but we need your help guys we're taking a leap of faith i'm overextending here and i, I just believe that it's going to work, but we need you to head over to youtube.com and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We need you to share this podcast with everybody and anyone you know aspiring to be great in the industry, support our sponsors, use our affiliate links. You know the routine. Uh, just and thank you in advance if you are using those links and you are supporting the show. Um, as you're listening to this, we're going to be 
in New Orleans. If uh, you're based in New Orleans and you want to connect, don't be shy. Please reach out to us. We're there until Thursday. Maybe we can grab a coffee or uh, a beer. No promises. We're going to be freaking busy. But uh, also let me know who you think we should have on the show. Or maybe you think you should be on the show. Uh, and if you're willing to talk about the numbers and to to go deep, like we'll, we'll entertain it for sure. We're always looking for the next person to get on the show. So uh, thank you if you do reach out to us. All right. That's it for today. Can't say goodbye without saying special thanks to Jared Parisi over at Sumadre Podcast for helping me edit and produce this podcast. And thank you to Sam at SavinSam.com for coming on the road with me and helping me take this thing to the next level. That's it for today. Until next time. Peace out.